Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahaber, your host for this episode. We are grateful to be joined by Wari Coulter, Associate Professor of Human Geography at University College London. His teaching spans population, urban, and economic geography, as well as quantitative methods. His research examines population mobility, housing dynamics, and neighborhood change. And today, we'll be talking about his very first book, Housing and Life Course Dynamics, Changing Lives, Places, and Inequalities, published by Policy Press in 2023. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Coulter. Very happy to be talking to you about your book. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here um, today to talk about uh, Housing and Life Course Dynamics. First off, could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself? I'm going on what I would have said in the intro, your personal story. Yeah, your personal story, how you came to be who you are today, and what experiences prompted you to write the book we're talking about. For sure. Um, so I kind of started my academic career um, about 15 years ago now, really, um, when I started doing a PhD mm-hmm. um, at the University of St. Andrews. And that, that PhD was all about residential mobility, so the movement of people between different homes and neighborhoods um, as their lives change. Um, and that's a topic that's always been really of interest to me all the way back um, into my sort of undergraduate days, really. Um, and I'm really interested in housing for, for kind of a number of reasons, I suppose. And one is just that it's so important for so much of our lives. And it's something that we often take for granted. It's such a, um, it, you know, many of us, it's kind of just such a thing that we, we don't even think about it. It's a kind of unexamined part of our lives, but it's so important for us. Um, so, you know, for our health, our prosperity, um, our access to opportunities of all sorts. Um, so it's just such an interesting and important subject um, to examine. And I became interested in that during my PhD, and I've really continued that focus on housing, neighborhoods, and the life course, really, all through um, my research career. And I, now, now I do a lot of teaching. Uh, I'm based at UCL these days. I do a lot of teaching that relates to urban issues, um, and housing, it's a subject that I think the students I teach really engage with um, because it's so it's such a, an important part of everybody, everyday life. Um, and yeah, it's just I really had wanted to write a book for a long time about the topic, um, partly because I think there's a lack of kind of synthetic overviews of the subject. Um, we focus very much on production of sort of short, focused research papers, perhaps at the expense of the synoptic overview and sometimes we sort of 
and miss the wood for the trees, as, as, it, as it were, a little bit. Um, and I wanted to kind of intervene in that debate, try and bring everything together in one place for students um, and more advanced readers as well. Try to sort of do a bit of synthesis, really, of the field. So providing that sort of synthetic interview that sort of set your sets your book apart maybe from other works on housing and housing inequalities? Yes, synthesis and, and also bringing up to date. I mean, there have been some really great books in the past, but there hasn't been um, that kind of overview uh, text produced for probably 15 years or so. So I thought this was a very timely moment. Housing's very much in on the domestic policy agenda in many global north and global south countries. I thought it was time that we revisited um, what we know really about housing and the life course. Those who might be unfamiliar, um, exactly what do you mean by the life course and life course dynamics? And why did you choose to use this as a main organizing framework for the book and to examine housing? Yeah, uh, good question. So um, the life course is a kind of a framework. It's not really a theory exactly or a theoretical framework, but it's a sort of organizing set of principles that helps us um, to really just think about how people's lives unfold um, over the entire course of their lifespan, essentially. Um, so it's a framework that we really grew out of um, sociology in the sort of 1970s, 1980s. Um, as a way to move beyond kind of much more normative, prescriptive, linear ideas of life cycles um, to better understand the inequality, the diversity, and the dynamism um, of, of current human lives. Um, and one of the sort of early key thinkers really in life course, course sociology is Glenn Elder. Um, and he, dev he sort of outlined five principles of the life course that we can use when we are studying social dynamics in lots of different areas, including housing. Those principles are lifespan development, timing, thinking of lives. So the idea that the way our lives unfold is intimately related to other people and the dynamics of their lives. So our significant others. Agency and the final principle um, is, is time and place. And I kind of touch on all of these in the book, and I try and use those frame, those, those kind of five principles to distill a set of what I call conceptual tools, I and mean, there's 12 of them in the book, which researchers and people are just thinking about housing issues and discussing housing issues can kind of draw on to help um, bring together what we know and perhaps also think about what we don't know about a range of different housing issues. Um, and I like the high course framework. Really, I think it's really appropriate for studying housing because of that recognition of diversity, dynamism, inequality, and, and kind of difference. It allows us to understand um, how those kind of diverse set of experiences unfold, but also why, and also perhaps what we can what we can do about the inequalities as well. Um, so it's a really rich kind of framework for understanding, but it can also provide us with some insights that we can actually use, hopefully, to build better housing-related um, policies. And I kind of touch on that towards the end of the book. Yeah, I, that's um, yeah, one of the things I most found, I, I found really interesting, you know, that sort of emphasis, the life course framework sort of um, takes in sort of examining things longitudinally rather than the sort of cross-sectional analysis. I see a lot of um, work on housing and inequality. 
I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, the 12 conceptual tools, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on them and also on the sort of method methodological approach you took in writing the book. Yeah, that's um, a, a good question. So um, it's probably worth sort of speaking a little bit more about who I am, because um, that can help us to, to, to answer that, sort of help me to answer that question. So I am kind of a quantitative human geographer, so I use try to use social data sets, really, um, in most of my research. Um, and I'm particularly interested in longitudinal data, as you mentioned. And by longitudinal data, all we mean are data that um, are gathered repeatedly from the same people, households, or units um, as those units move through time. So the longitudinal data sets, there's lots of different kinds of them, allow us to study change within people's lives, which is a really powerful tool for social analysis. So the book is really a lot, there's a lot of longitudinal data, there's a lot of evidence from longitudinal studies built into the book, because that's kind of what I've always been doing in my, my own research. Um, and longitudinal research is really fundamental to the life course approach. It's very difficult to separate life course research from longitudinal research. The two are very intimately related to one another. Um, and if we take a longitudinal perspective on lives and we're looking at how they change, how they unfold over time, um, I think there are 12, what I call 12 conceptual tools that help us to make sense of those. Um, so in the book, I kind of link those 12 tools back to the five core principles of life course sociology that, that I outlined a few minutes ago. Um, so the first kind of tool that I discuss in the book is, 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 called, is, is the tool biography. So this is a biography, the idea of biography can be used in lots and lots of different ways. Um, it can be used in a kind of quite rigid objective sense. So looking at the different sorts of states people pass through as their lives change. So for example, we might be living in the parental home, then moving out, renting independently, sharing with others, moving into potentially buying a home, moving into home ownership. That could be a, a kind of a housing biography that someone experiences. Um, but biography can also be a much more qualitative, um, interpretative kind of concept. Um, so we can think about how people construct their biographies and the kind of social meaning that particular biographies have for people. So biography is a really useful, flexible tool. Um, a second tool, is the idea of cumulative development. Um, and by that, what I mean is it's been known for a very long time that how our lives, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the attainments we have, the experiences we're having at the moment, those are a, a product of a cumulative development process. So um, events in the past basically can have a long-term impact on future outcomes. Um, and in the housing context, we can think about kind of the way in which inequalities experienced early on in life might compound one another over time, um, for example, over the course of, of a life. Um, so those are kind of the two first, the first of the, the kind of the conceptual tools that I touch on in the book, and those relate back to the lifespan principle. Um, there's a whole series of tools related to timing. Um, so the timed nature of events. And the idea here is basically that when something happens in your life is very, the timing of that event is really, really important. Um, and there's sort of a few conceptual tools attached to the principle of timing. I don't want to go through them all. I think that, that's probably not the best idea in, in this space. But one of them would be the idea of order and sequence. Um, so this just means that the order in which different events happen kind of really matters for how our lives Unfold, and I, I talk about this in the book in the context of um, 
kind of mental ill health, unemployment, and a housing event, an adverse housing event like eviction. So what's going on, how we, how we understand that process unfolding and the policy um, implications we might kind of draw out of that depends very much on the order in which those events happen. So if the first event that's experienced is the mental illness, and then the second event is unemployment, and then the third event is eviction, that suggests a social policy intervention that focuses in on kind of safeguarding people's psychological well-being. And that will mean that we have fewer of those evictions, the adverse events at the end of the sequence. Whereas if we rearrange the events, we put an employment first and then mental ill health and then eviction, it looks more like the causal process there is that unemployment, so you know, experiencing um, labor market difficulties, is actually triggering mental illness and then causing evictions. And in that case, what we want to do is we want to tackle the source of the economic risk that's causing the adverse health outcomes. So that's the principle of timing. You know, timing matters. When stuff happens in your life and the order and the sequencing of events is really important. Um, one of the most interesting and important, I think, principles of the life course framework is this idea of linked lives. So a lot of social research, um, we treat individuals as kind of quite atomized actors, um, particularly in, in quantitative data sets, because often we don't know about the relationships that kind of link and bind people together. But obviously that's that's not really realistic. Um, our lives are kind of intertwined with the lives of other people, um, the people that's very significant to us, partners, children, parents, and so on. Um, and in the book, I devise ideas of life course solidarities to try and explore how people might help each other out in different ways in the housing system. So that could be providing gifts and loans to help loved ones buy housing. And we know that's a very common process in, in many countries, and that's a way to help particularly younger cohorts move into owner occupation. But solidarities could also take the form of kind of care and, and support um, for in, in physical terms uh, for each other as well. So lots of different forms of solidarities that bind their lives together and shape how they unfold. Um, there's also impacts, uh, talking a little bit about, about synchronization of life courses. So the idea that people, people's lives are kind of, and the way in which those lives um, develop, the events people experience are tied to the timing of events in other people's lives as well. So partners arrange their work and their family life around their quite complicated patterns of responsibilities. That's an, an example of kind of synchronization that has a huge impact on housing decisions, decisions about where to live. Um, some of the other tools that I think are really important are construction. Um, so that ties back to the idea of the principle of agency, the idea that people acting actively construct their housing biographies, if you will, if you will. And there's lots and lots of research that's been done on the way in which kind of preferences and norms interact, influence, create sort of lifestyle preferences for particular sorts of living in particular places. Over time. So that's the idea of the principle of agency and the tool of construction at work. Um, and the final two conceptual tools I talk about in the book are, for me as a geographer, perhaps particularly important. Um, so one of them is, is changing places. Um, and what I want to do in this with this conceptual tool is really bring together two kind of sets of literature. One on how people move through the housing system, so an individually focused literature, and on the other hand, a literature which is all about neighborhood change. So the idea that neighborhoods change through the movements in and out 
of those neighborhoods that people make. Um, so kind of the tool of changing places allows us to understand those things. Um, and yeah, the, the principle of the, the tool, of the, one of the other kind of tools I use in the book is cohort and period, which um, I think helps us to understand how different cohorts kind of come of age at different times in, in sort of social social moments, and that shapes how those cohorts' fortunes pan out over time. Um, so different cohorts experience different constellations of contextual circumstances that has a, a sort of aggregate level impact on them. So that's a kind of an example, really, of the tool of cohort period. And the overall aim of the book, really, is to kind of use those 12 tools to bring together what we know about life course dynamics in the context of housing and housing behavior. I think there's a fantastic um, and very succinct breakdown of, of the different tools and a lot of points in which in which we could jump off of that. Um, maybe we could go off one of the last things you, you said related to cohorts. And I think this is also a point that you brought up in the book. You know, we see a permanent trend, especially among younger generations, in that there is definitely a greater propensity to be living at home uh, with parents, uh, yeah, among younger cohorts. I've, this is something becoming increasingly uh, more and more common in both the developed and developing world. Uh, it's something I've become aware of uh, reading journal articles and news articles, and also anecdotally, I noticed it within my own networks of friends, and it's something I do myself, and it's something you talked about in the book. I'm wondering um, if you could maybe give some insights on why this is happening and in relation to the life course framework, what might be some of the potential consequences of this on housing careers and residential behaviors in the future? Super question. And it's one that I have done a fair amount of work on before writing the book, really, or, or trying to understand this trend uh, towards prolonged or extended kind of co-residence um, in the parental home. Um, so it's worth kind of it's worth kind of recapping, I guess, what the, this trend involves and, and, and thinking about where this trend is observed to start with. Um, so there's quite good evidence now from a good number of countries uh, in, uh, you know, in Europe, in, in North America and beyond that um, people in the sort of young adult phase of life, which generally we take to mean sort of 18 to 35, up to about 34, 35, are more likely than their predecessors in previous birth cohorts to be found living in the parental home. Um, into their 20s and sometimes also into the, their 30s as well. Um, but, you know, we see, we've seen this in lots of different countries uh, and it crops up quite a lot in popular discussions as well. So um, in the UK, there's um, discussions about boomerang kids um, that come up fairly regularly in the popular press. There's more stigmatizing language of failure to launch is sometimes used. Um, and different people have different kind of takes on why this is is happening and we have a surprisingly kind of poor understanding i guess of the sort of processes that have produced this situation which i think all do come back to to cohort um and we can think perhaps about a couple of different potential reasons why younger people might be spending longer living at home and they're not all necessarily quote unquote bad reasons right there are lots of lots of kind of reasons that actually might be quite positive for 
both the younger people and their parents. So you need to be quite careful about the language you use and about assuming that this is a problematic trend. Um, that's perhaps an empirical question. Um, so one of the things, one of the drivers is, is kind of the expansion or you know, prolonging of education combined with um, labor markets that are more insecure than in the past um, and offer and often offer lower and less stable wages than they once did. So the process of the way labor markets have restructured over time means that those that are entering the labor market today are, tend to be confronted with a less um, stable, less stable prospects, perhaps less re well remunerated jobs than someone of the same age entering a labor market 30 years ago would have been. Um, so that's one, that's sort of a response to economic kind of insecurity. Um, one response to that might be to spend longer living at home. That's quite a rational response. Um, parents can help you by providing in-kind assistance, by letting you stay longer and um, living with them. Um, there are other reasons as well, and, and housing markets crop up as a, a very common um, explanation as to why parent careers might be being prolonged. So um, problems of housing affordability really affecting the entire world really now. Um, in, in one form or another, and when housing's hard to afford, it makes sense to spend longer living at home to avoid having to pay higher rents. So I can't afford to pay higher rents, can't afford to buy a house. It makes sense to stay longer living at home to save up to buy a house. There's lots and lots of kind of strategic reasons, but also more coping kind of mechanisms that might explain why younger adults are spending longer living at home than they want to. Did. Um, and I think the life course framework provides some tools to help us unpack that 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 kind of pattern, really. So number one, it provides us with a tool of cohort, which allows us to compare how different people born at different different periods of time have been more or less likely to spend particular amounts of time living at home. So we can compare cohorts and see how long they've spent living at home, and we can understand kind of macro-level social change by doing that. Um, but the life course perspective also provides us with other tools that can help us to make sense of prolonged parental co-residence. So one of the issues that's kind of important for us to think about is what implications does that does, does spending longer living at home have for other aspects of young people's lives? Does it, for example, impede partnership formations and perhaps lead to delayed fertility and perhaps having fewer children? And that's an important question. Another quite important question, if we're interested and concerned about inequality, is, well, what limitations does living in the parental home have on the jobs you can access? Okay. One would imagine that if parental co-residence is becoming more common, then where those parental residences are located starts to become a very important determinant of opportunities. If your parents... Um, are living in a location that offers you great access to education, to work. You know, so I'm sitting here in central London, you know, one of the perhaps one of the uh, places in the world that offers the best access to you know jobs that are, are desirable for lots of people. If your if your parents live in an area like this, great, you've got great access and great public transport opportunities to get to jobs, and that could be really useful. If your parents are living in a kind of remote rural village um, where it, you know, the nearest town is an, is an hour, hour's drive away, that's much more limiting. Okay, that might really limit you um, in terms of opportunities you can access. Um, so, so, you know, we start to, geography starts to become important. 
Okay, so the life course framework really provides us with tools like cohort that help us to understand uh, why these trends are occurring. And it provides us the kind of ideas around timing, um, time and place really, that allow us to think through some of the ramifications and their impacts on inequality particularly, which is what I, um, as a social scientist, I'm really interested in and I'm you know, obviously concerned about as well. I would like to, to help shed some insights uh, into policies that could be implemented to kind of ameliorate some of those inequalities and injustices. Based on the insights you would have just shared um, surrounding that issue, uh, what would be some of the policies um, you would recommend? Um, you mentioned the potential impact, of, for example, on fertility and, and so on. Is that something that maybe governments need to address in, in some ways? Um, should they provide ways for people to maybe move out of the home and incentives to do that? Um, does the book say anything on this at all? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think the the issue of leaving the parental home is one that is is really important, and it is a really a, pol a really important policy relevant issue, and it's something that appears in if certainly in the UK policy discussions around housing. Um, one of the kind of reasons that policymakers espouse for you know policies to try and build more housing is really to bring down the cost of housing in order to allow people to make moves that would be economically beneficial for them. So moving to opportunity, freeing up moves that are currently being constrained um, is, is kind of part of the logic of, of many governments' housing policy responses. And I, I think, you know, on the one hand, we need to be sensitive to the fact that spending longer living at home, you know, could be a, a positive thing. It could be reflect kind of stronger generational bonds. It could reflect lifestyle changes. Uh, and so it could be, you know, for some people in some circumstances, it could be a positive choice. We need, we need to recognize that. But at the same time, for those for whom would like, who would like to move out, but are unable to do so. Yeah, of course, policy should be trying to help people to do that. Um, and there's a couple of levers that I think we should be thinking about pulling to try and kind of make young people's um make it easier for young people who want to leave home to do so and i mean the first one is clearly um you know kind of social relating to social security so in the uk at least um reforms to so the social security system which over the last decade have involved cuts by and large um basically explicitly are motivated to try to push young people back into the parental home there's a sort of normative expectation that that parental homes are available and should house low-income young adults. That's a big problem. Not everyone has access to a safe, healthy, secure parental home. Okay. So exactly. Yeah. You know, those kinds of social policy, those, those kinds of social security policies are, you know, pretty regressive. And I do talk about that in some detail in the book and discuss some of the evidence that actually austerity cuts to housing related benefits have pushed marginal younger adults into um, housing difficulties. So for example, sharing accommodation with strangers um, in unhealthy um, and unsafe conditions, there's some good evidence that that has had really bad impacts on some young adults' well-being. Um, so I think, you know, social security policy um, is clearly really, really important. I mean, on a broader level, um, you know, job security, making sure that people are being paid fairly for the work they're doing, ensuring good ac equal access to 
jobs is, is, is also really important. So there's a huge range of kind of policies that um, are important to sort of think about when we're kind of devising solutions really to, to ensure that younger adults can leave home if they'd like to do so. Uh, thanks for addressing those points. Um, uh, I, I wanted to also ask you, uh, in the context of um, the sort of housing crisis, I, I think it's taking place in many uh, Western developed countries. Uh, we see happening, like in in worse ways. I think uh, it seems to me since COVID began. You you mentioned you wrote the book in in the midst of COVID nineteen, but noted being hesitant in writing much about the pandemic as it was still early to assess anything other than the most immediate consequences when it came to housing. I'm curious if since then you've developed any insights on the relationship between the pandemic and housing since you wrote the book and in relation to life course dynamics. Um, is that something you've given thought about, thought since then? Yeah, no, really good question. Yes, in the preface to the book, um, I do explain I haven't really I, you know, I made a decision not to talk too much about COVID, the COVID-19 period, partly because when I finished the book, it was still 2022 and and we were just sort of emerging into the quote-unquote post-pandemic um, period. Um, and partly just because, you know, the most of the evidence on, on the COVID pandemic and its its inter interactions with housing was, was really in its early days, in its infancy. Um, you know, speaking from a sort of a UK context, a context that I know know best, I think there are there are sort of two things to think about related to COVID nineteen. I think the first one is that government, and I think to a lesser uh, to an extent, many households as well have been very keen to go back to business as usual as quickly as possible. Um, and a lot of what 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 is quite disappointing, well, very disappointing in many ways, is that a lot of the kind of the optimistic discussions that took place during the early period of the pandemic around kind of creating more livable cities, you know, ensuring that people didn't have to commute so far to work, could act, you know, could go for, you know, could, could, could kind, of, kind of use local active travel solutions rather than relying on cars to get about. A lot of that optimism dissipated very quickly and that, that, that was a policy failure in my, in my view. Um, there was an opportunity early in the pandemic to really radically rethink cities and um, how people behave. Um, and that dissipated very quickly and we went straight back to business as usual. So that was a bit, that's one pessimistic thing that has struck me really um, about the, the pandemic. The second thing that I think has changed structurally is the relationship that home and work have, um, at least in for some groups in some places. Um, so during the pandemic, many of us got used to working at home for most, of, most if not all of the time. Um, and certainly in, in the UK context, hybrid working seems to, to be here to stay for some people. Um, and that's an important qualifier because it's not true for everybody. Um, but for groups that are some managerial professional and um, where people have a lot of autonomy um, and control uh, over their jobs, the kind of idea of commuting five days a week over a very long distance seems not to be um, coming back. We, we've kind of had there's been a structural shift towards flexi working, um, and that that's really important for housing. It, it, it affects obviously commuting behavior. Um, you can see that on a Friday, which you're on the train. There's not as many people on the train on a Friday, 
um, because that's the day a lot of people spend working at home. But it also matters because our homes become places that we work. Um, and not all homes are suitable for a workplace. It's fine to work at home if you've got a spare room that you can repurpose as a study or a, a home office. Um, it's not so easy to work from home if you're in a small flat um, in the center of town. That makes it very difficult. So, you know, there are kind of disparities in experiences of, of home and work that are starting to be um, starting to become really important uh, and inequalities in, acts, in in opportunities to start businesses from home, for example, that relate back to housing. And um, so I think, you know, yes, in the book, I don't talk too much about COVID, but it's something that I am, I, I do think about, um, and I'm sort of, there are some things that I think have fundamentally changed since the pandemic um, that relate to how people relate to their homes. So it'd be interesting to see where things go in the next few years. Um, one of the other things I, I wanted to sort of ask you more on as well, what I noticed in the, you know, the last couple of chapters, you go about fleshing out the sort of bi-directional relationship between a particular life course domain and how they interact with housing systems and behaviors, uh, using the, the, the 12 conceptual tools you would have developed. So I remember one chapter focused on household and family, another on employment, one on health. Um, I'm thinking it would be a good idea if maybe you'd be able to speak a bit more on some of the impactful findings of maybe one or more of these chapters, um, giving a taste to the listening audience of what, you know, interesting, other, well, more interesting insights they can you know, expect to learn more about if they read the book. Great question. Um, okay, yeah. Um, so, so for those listening, I mean, the book is structured so that the the first couple of chapters provide the sort of conceptual framework, so the life course um, to, uh, principles and tools um, and why they're useful. So we've already sort of been discussing that as we've gone through um, this chat today. Um, and then there are kind of four chapters which take us through how housing and one particular area of life are intertwined, um, and that is a bi-directional relationship. So it's, I kind of like to think of it as how the homes we live in shape our lives and how our lives shape where we live. It's, it's that kind of two-way process. So there's a chapter on housing and families, a chapter on education and training, a chapter on employment and wealth, and the final chapter of this kind of four-part section is, is on um, it, yeah, sorry, I lost my, lost my thread of, of thinking there. So employment, wealth, and health and well-being at the end. Um, so in, in terms of health, let's let's take health as a sort of a good one to think about. Um, so in the book, what, what I do is try and explain and synthesize what we know about the relationships between housing and health. And there's been a lot of research on this going all the way back to the 19th century. A lot of the kind of early 19th century sort of social reformers were motivated really by a concern about that that housing in industrializing centers was causing um you know lots and lots of health problems that were spilling out of kind of areas of poverty to affect everybody adversely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the book I, I talk about the way what we know about how housing affects our health. I mean this is a there is a lot of evidence that living in kind of poor quality homes um 
you know, in the UK context, that tends to mean kind of problems with damp, cold, mold, um, condensation. Um, that has really bad impacts on a range of conditions, respiratory conditions, neurological conditions, um, as well as psychological well-being. And there have been a number of um, extremely tragic um, cases that have brought that to the public prominence really over the last few years. Um, so I talk about that and review some of the evidence about housing and, and health. And, and I think here some of the life course tools, <clears throat> pardon me, that I alluded to at the start are really important. So ideas of kind of timing. Um, so we know, for example, and I discussed this in the book, that um, exposure to poor quality housing early on in life, of course, when, you, when you're a young child or in, even in the womb, that has a particularly damaging effect on health outcomes, which may persist all the way over the lifespan. So that's sort of an idea of why this principle of timing really is hugely important. Um, but I also talk in the book really about how health affects our housing because, you know, particularly for thinking through the idea of disabilities. Um, so, you know, there are, did, those with disabilities have faced a lot of barriers in, in accessing in accessing housing um, and the sort of homes that are available to people who perhaps are not able to um, work, um, you know, certainly not maybe full time. Um, yeah, it has implications on spending power and kinds of homes we can can live in. So there's this sort of bi-directional relationship between our homes and our health um, that really has a fundamental impact um, on us as we move through the life course. That would be a, a sort of a good example, I think, of that bi-directionality um, in action. I could talk about it for for another hour, but I, I'll, I'll kind of leave that point there, I think, because the health example is a really good one. It's one that's been extensively studied. Uh, definitely. I mean, I, I guess people would have to, you know, buy the book and, you know, find out and all, all of these different life domains, you know, I get the, the in-depth info on that. So I, I think we're just about coming to a close. So one of the last questions I want to ask you, just sort of pulling everything together, you know, all the analysis um, you would have done in the book and you have undertaken, what are some of the guidelines or recommendations you came up with and also some key takeaways you want listeners to note as we close okay yeah so some some key kind of points to take away i'll take that that sort of question part of the question first really um the one of the key things i think is that housing and the way it's discussed in the popular press it, it often becomes a numbers game so those numbers could be we need to build X number of houses in order to make you know the country a better place, or we need to get our house prices down by a certain amount. Numbers really feature, and they're often numbers that relate to housing supply and the housing market in some way. And really, the fundamental thing I wanted this book to do was to to shift the focus onto people, the people, people, and the way that their lives are shaped by the housing contexts that they pass through. Okay, um, and it's not necessarily passive, just passively shaped, but the way people behave also changes the housing system. So I wanted to put people really back into the public conversations of housing. Um, so anyone who's listening um, who wants a sort of summary of what, what I think the most important thing about the book is that, that, that hope is the take-home point. People matter. People experience the housing crisis. Um, and we need to understand inequalities that are built into the way people experience housing. Um, in terms of the 
kind of guidelines. So what I try to do at the end of the book is really to sort of set out 10, um, yeah, 10, 10 guidelines that I hope readers take away um, and that can use when, when reading about housing, but also perhaps if you're a researcher, um, you can potentially apply in your own work. Um, and I'll just give a couple of examples here because um, there are 10, you know, some of them are quite, some of them are longer than others. I don't want to, to drag this on too much. I think one of the key um, guidelines really that I offer, I sort of outline at the end of the book is the idea of expecting diversity. Okay. So not looking necessarily for one typical pattern of behavior, pattern of outcomes, but to actually treat diversity as, you know, the diversity of experience and outcomes, something to be investigated, to be charted, to be understood and potentially um, to have our policy, to build into our policies in a much better way. So we can't have one size fits all policies. And I sort of alluded to that when I was talking about younger people in the parental home earlier. You know, there are lots of reasons why younger people might be living at home and no one size fits all explanation is going to work to understand that, that trend. Um, another kind of key guideline that I think I want people to sort of take away is the idea that lives are connected and connected through housing. Um, and that comes up again and again as we're going through the book, really, that um, it's not the case that we as individualized, atomized lives in the housing system, but the lives of others are so deeply embedded into our own that the two kind of co-construct one another. Um, you know, so for example, the relationship of parents to children is fundamental to housing. So parents selecting housing to ensure their children go to a good school, parents transferring housing wealth to their children in order to help them buy their first home, children perhaps moving closer to their elderly parents later in life to provide them with some care. Um, these are sort of all examples of solidarities of the connections between people that, that matter um, and the way in which housing actually can connect us. Um, and a final guideline, I guess, I would like people to sort of take away is really that a lot of the things that I talk about in the book related to housing cannot, what the problems cannot be solved purely through housing policy. Okay, so there's a temptation to see housing as a sort of discrete feature of, of kind of, um, of of kind of our economies and our societies, but actually a lot of the problems and the challenges that we face in housing cannot be solved through purely through housing policies. So, um, you know, we can think about, for example, changes in labour markets as being a really powerful and potent predict potent determinant of changes in the housing system so if that labor market is creating economic insecurity and creating lower income jobs that has big housing consequences but it may not be necessarily soluble through housing policies it might require um you know improving the terms and conditions of employment and improving wages for lower income groups that could be the best solution to the kind of residential problems they face so that's the sort of three of the 10 guidelines that I guess I want people um, perhaps to take away um, from the book. Some of the guidelines are a bit more technical than others and relate to kind of using longitudinal data, for example, but you'll have to read the book to, to find out more about those. Definitely um, really uh, salient points uh, to end on uh, in terms of um, those three of the, the 10 recommendations. Yeah, people, if they really want to find out more, get the book. So it's at this point I'll ask you, Dr. Coulter, you know, what's next? Are you open to build on the ideas you explored? 
Is there any new material you have out or currently working on that you would like to share this time? Anything at all you'd like to bring attention to? Yeah, always nice to to look forward at the end of these um these conversations, I think. Um I guess there are a couple of things that I'm working on at the moment that relate to the book that sort of have kind of grown out of, of the book. Um and one of the one of the things that sort of on a personal level I found when writing the book was that it just started generating it was a very generative process. So many new avenues and and and, and kind of ideas started popping up. Um, it became almost overwhelming at times, actually, that sort of sense of so many possibilities. Um, just a couple to sort of share. Number one is um, using kind of some of the longitudinal data that I kind of touch on in the book, the Understanding Society Survey, doing some work at the moment looking at those transfers between the generations. So looking at which younger adults are receiving help to buy housing and crucially, what impact does receiving help have on the kinds of homes that younger people are buying into uh, buying so does receiving a large gift or a loan from your parents kind of allow you to buy a bigger or better located a more expensive house than it, you would have otherwise been able to buy so i'm doing some, some kind of work on that at the moment it's a early days but it looks it's quite interesting um and i'm also as a sort of second piece of work we're looking at the changing um tenure, housing tenure and social class composition of the city I'm in at the moment, London, um, to look at whether or not, you know, is the capital gentrifying essentially? Um, and it looks very much like London as a kind of a world city. There are lots of different forms of social change going on in different parts of the city um, over the last 10 years. Um, so some areas experiencing you know, very rapid change where lots of money's flown in lots of monies um, invested into an area and the public housing has been knocked down, redeveloped as private housing. That has had profound consequences for those areas. Other places where change has been much more incremental um, and slow. Um, so I'm sort of charting the social, changing social and housing geography of, of, of London really is something I want to do at the moment. That's something that um, is not just interesting for research, but I think it's also a really useful kind of teaching um, task as well. It's one of the sort of tasks I set my students is really you know, devising pro a project, looking at inequality in your London using social data. Wow. A lot of great material that you seem to be working through there. I'm definitely be interested in reading some of it if it ever, you know, is finalized into an article or a book or whatever it is. Uh, maybe um, there's room there for a second book, you know, in the future. Who knows? Well, so. yes, let's see. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's not not be too, let's not be too hasty, as Trebia said. All right. So, before we officially say goodbye, please let everyone know where they can find your book and where they can find out more about you and reach you if they need to. Yeah. So, um, the, the book Housing and Life Course Dynamics is, is published, it was published earlier this year, earlier in 2023 by Policy Press. Um, so do search for the look on the Policy Press website. Um, and you, you should be able to find, find links to the book there. It's also in most, um, bookstore, online bookstores as well. Um, so hopefully not too difficult to find. If you'd like to know more about me, um, probably the best place to do is to head over to my institutional web page. So I'm based at University College London, UCL, in the Department of Geography. Um, so if you find the UCL Geography page, you, you shouldn't 
take too much further searching to find my profile and you can learn a bit more about me, what I teach, what I'm researching. Um, at the moment, I am sporadically active on Twitter, uh, what, what was formerly the, the the site formerly known as Twitter. Um, right. And you can email me if you want to at r.coulter at ucl.ac.uk. Oh, I always forget Twitter has changed to it. Yeah. X now. Uh, yeah. Something yeah. you have to All right. It's hard so, to keep track. Definitely. So thanks uh, so much for having this conversation, Dr. Coulter. I wish you all the best. And it was a great read and a, a great book. So, Thank you. Um, great pleasure to be here. And it was really nice to have um, such a wide-ranging conversation, I think, about the book. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you take care. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah.